The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to follow in your Bible as I'm going to read our text today in Philippians, New Testament letter of Paul, Philippians chapter 2, picking up from where we were last time, verse 14 through verse 18. Just a relatively short passage. We want to inquire what God is saying to all of us by his word here today. Listen as I read. This is God's word. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, all in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. May God be our instructor this morning. I wonder how many of you remember days of school time when you were able to bring home a paper maybe in arithmetic, with a big red A written on the top and a gold star stuck on there. Excellent. I must confess, in arithmetic, I didn't bring too many of those home, but other subjects maybe. But when you did that, in whatever subject, didn't it feel good to have that? Weren't you proud of yourself and what you accomplished? You showed it to mom and dad. You made sure they they knew that you had that kind of ability, and, and you probably felt without knowing how many others in the class had gotten it that you must be the top student of all. Felt really nice. Well, the New Testament tells us that Christians will receive crowns of life when we're judged at the final day because Christ knows his own, and by grace we already belong by faith to him. We've been incorporated into Him through His righteousness, through the Spirit of God, justifying us, working in us. And it is not going to be possible for any true believer in Christ to come to that great day and hear the words from the judge, you have failed. Some will hear it, but not those who belong to Christ. And it won't be because we were so great or so smart or achieved so well, it will be because Christ passed the course, you might say, for us at his cross and in his resurrection. And so we know today that if we know Christ as our Lord and we're walking by faith in him, we have lives, our text is telling us today, that actually partake of what Christ is. And by his Holy Spirit, 
Paul has said that we are like shining stars in the world, like lamps that shed a light to other people so they can see where to walk, or like a beacon of a a lighthouse on a rocky coast. Now, you might say to yourself, that doesn't sound like me. I don't think I'm any kind of spiritual giant. I believe that what I am as a Christian is probably pretty individual, and most people maybe don't notice it too much, and it really doesn't help others because I'm struggling myself all the time to hold on to the Lord. But let me tell you that to people who really dwell in true darkness, the kind of caves that people inhabit in this world today, you as a Christian do shine to them. And it's the light of Christ that they see. Now, as we approach Philippians here again, I'm going to just quickly summarize where we are. We had that great passage of 2, 5 through 11, all about Christ and His marvelous example that that just stands out so wonderfully, coming from heaven's height, humbling Himself, obeying His Father, going all the way to the cross, and then being raised to a new and higher place as Lord of all things and being given the greatest name that anyone could have. That led us in last time to see that, that Paul is calling us to know that God has worked on our behalf already in this great salvation that Jesus did. He's already worked for us. Now he's saying, work out, apply that which God has done in you so that you would see your salvation being practically exhibited in everyday things of obedience and faith. Now, beginning at verse 14, we move from a general exhortation of work out your salvation, apply your salvation, to a fairly specific thing that we're invoked to do here. And it it's something that tells us we need to have lives that are going to be transparent in a way that the character of Christ that's being formed in us would actually shine through us, shine out of us. Even if it's weak, even if it's like that flickering flashlight, you know, when the battery's just about to go and you hope it's going to give you enough light to get to the door of the house and put your key in the lock or something, but it's going to go out soon. Even if that's your spiritual life, you're a light of Christ if you belong to him. And the truth of the gospel in you, what God is doing in you, can actually be seen by other people who live in darkness. In fact, we can tell people that you actually may be the only light of Christ that some people see. They they may be unchurched. They may have no gospel witness before them. And perhaps your actions and your character, because of the way it stands out to them, is the only real light of Christ that they are seeing. Well, as we go into this passage, there are several things, I think, that need to be said on the theme of Christian character and its being a light to others. This, first of all, Christian character means submissiveness to God without arguing and disputing His ways. I have to confess to you, when I read verse 14 saying to me, do everything without complaining or arguing. There's a little thing in my mind that says, well, why is that so important? 
And, and how did Paul get from where he was in verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to do things without complaining and arguing? I would think he, he might have said, you know, something, he might have introduced a topic that was a little more exalted or something. It seems like kind of a minor uh, moral instruction here of something that, well, sure, it's important, but is it really of premier importance that we do things without complaining or arguing? There are people who would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really a good person. I'm just grumpy. My wife would probably say that of me, uh, especially in the early morning. Uh, you know, I just kind of greet new ideas with opposition, and I have a, a reason to present against it, and I don't I question things and, and so on, but, you know, I'm, I'm not completely a contrary person. So why is Paul addressing this, if it might just be a personality issue? Well, I think it has to be because it's more than that. The kind of spiritual complaining and arguing as a characteristic of your life that Paul has in mind here is far from harmless. In fact, it can even be deadly from a spiritual standpoint in some people's lives because it is something that becomes directed against God. All the commentators would say that Paul just about certainly had in mind here some comparison of how we must behave to the Israelites on the exodus out of Egypt. Every commentator I read, a half a dozen or more of them would say that, that as he talks here, he's thinking about the classic example of people whose lives were marked by arguing and complaining. Now, certainly if you have even the most basic knowledge of the Old Testament, you can remember the, the exodus, the people coming out of slavery in Egypt, led by Moses, who was called of God to go and speak to Pharaoh, and you know the whole story of Pharaoh didn't want to let them go, and plagues came, and finally they went, and they actually took Egyptian treasures with them. God worked mighty miracles. He opened the Red Sea. He destroyed the Egyptian army. He fed them. He brought water out of the rocks for them. And what a privileged people they were. Can you even think of a group of people in all of history where God has ever done more manifestly wonderful things on behalf of a group of people in a short period of time to benefit them, to change their whole life situation? And so you know, of course, what Israel was like as a result of that. They were dancing and celebrating every night in their camps and saying, praise God, praise God, isn't our God wonderful and great? Well, they were doing that when they weren't arguing and complaining. And they were arguing and complaining primarily about God and what he had not done for them. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Who's this guy Moses? Who put him in charge? What does he know? Why life was great in Egypt. Let's go back there. Everything was better when we were slaves. And to the point of it being ridiculous, And yet God allows us to see that ridiculous scene to understand how argumentative, how ungrateful, how self-centered and unsatisfied the natural spirit of mankind really is. When God does the most that could be done for a group of people, he's repaid with a litany of bitter and continual complaint. 
Now, if you think that was just the Israelites' problem and and people aren't that fickle and don't act that way today, I'll give you a very modern, up-to-date example. It's in your newspapers and on your news reports every night now. Here we are in an election season. And I think you can remember the election season of just 24 months ago when we elected a president. And as you will recall, in the American situation, 24 months ago, people thought they had a miracle worker running for president. And they said, my goodness, look at this. The man's going to work miracles. Elect him. My salary will double. I've never had a job. Now I'll have one, and so on. Everything will be marvelous. And so more than 60% of the electorate said, bring in the Savior. Well, they've had the Savior for not quite 24 months, And what are they saying? Are you watching the news? Half of the people who voted for him are saying, who's he and what's he done? Get rid of the bum. I didn't vote for him. Isn't it amazing how people can respond with complaint and self-centeredness and expect things that are totally unrealistic to expect? I'm speaking in the president's behalf. I may not have voted for him, but in one way I feel sorry for him and how fickle the people are and how quickly they turn on him. We see in Israel's exodus that much more than human politics was on the line. These complaints voiced in exodus were an agnostic sort of rebellion against the very leadership of God and the providence of God as exhibited in his plans and his doings for Israel. They were denials of his grace. They were blatant acts of distrust that God was their leader. They grumbled that they had no food. He gave them manna six days a week. It was sweet. It was satisfying. It was nourishing. It was plentiful. Oh, we hate this stuff. Give us meat. And in a stroke of irony that I'm sure has God's, you can say, humor involved. Remember when he rained the quail down on the camp, and the description was the bodies of quail were laying thick on the ground, and they ate it, and what did they say? We're disgusted with this stuff, a delicacy that you'd pay for in the restaurant. We hate it. We're sick of it. Give us something else. Well, you know, it makes us smile at how absurd these people were, but when you look back, you understand it was a very serious matter. It was that complaining, that never-satisfied, grouchy, angry response to God for which God gave up those complainers, and they never saw the blessing of his eternal reception as people of the covenant. Hebrews has an amazing description early in the book of Hebrews when it says their bodies fell in the desert, period. That was it for them. Their angry complaints ended, and they saw no heavenly blessing. So evidently, complaining and arguing and an angry, unsatisfied spirit can become an ugly monster in people's lives as we go through life with unbalanced criticism and just sort of constant, strident impatience that the Lord isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not fulfilling my plan. Why isn't he doing this? That becomes deadly unbelief. And God is at work in people's lives. 
He's engineering the hills and valleys of life. We saw last week that he works not only to will, to act on our decisions, the the inmost thoughts we have, but our actions. He's involved in all this, but we're not happy. And there are people for whom even their prayers are more like gripe sessions before God. If we would go to the shopping mall and witness what you can often see there, a tired child being dragged from store to store, and maybe a a child who's not very well trained to be obedient and putting on a temper tantrum, I want this or I want that to happen, and they're screaming and there's yelling and the mother's responding the same way we'd say, that mother needs to get control there. There needs to be a correction. We could see that. We could, I know how to raise other people's children. I don't know if you do, but I do. But can we see that in ourselves? When we're the ones putting on the tantrum, when we're the ones with our lips sticking out because God hasn't acted the way we think he should act. And at what level do we think we can continue to live in low you know, sort of low-level bickering against God and still call it faith. It isn't faith. 1 Corinthians ten eleven says we should take a warning from those Israelites. They were given to us as an example. And as God's adopted children in Christ, we need to hold up a mirror and say, how am I angry? How am I complaining How am I unsatisfied before the Lord with the unfolding of his circumstances in my life? What's the antidote to this? Well, the antidote is what we've been taught already in this chapter in the great example of Christ. Did Christ complain? Was he angry because he was the son of the highest and and deserved all kinds of privileges and honors accorded to him? No. He came on an errand. The Father sent him upon. He didn't question it. He didn't challenge it. He submitted to it and obeyed his Father. And that's why we get verse 14, I think, where it is in Philippians 2. Submissiveness to the Lord as, a, as an opposite of arguing and complaining and dissatisfaction is a character mark of a child of God, acting in faith, accepting things maybe we don't understand for the moment. Christian character means submissiveness to God without arguing and complaining. Well, now I'd go to the next verse, 15, to say the second point. Christian character is a blameless transparency that lets Christ in me shine through. Listen to the verse. It says, Do everything without complaining or arguing that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked, depraved generation among whom you shine like stars in the universe. Now, our tendency, most of us, I, it's my tendency, is to read this and say, that can't be me. Well, I'm not spiritual enough to be called a star in the universe. That must be for some kind of super Christian. I don't know if there are any of those at Westminster or not, but I guess I'm not one. But maybe the problem is in saying that's, you know, too high a description for me is that we don't really understand the terminology here. One thing we don't understand is what it means to be blameless. Blamelessness is one of the things we look for when we nominate and elect elders in our church. 
If you would go to 1 Timothy 3.2, you'll see in a list of qualities, characteristics of the individual's life, the very first thing it says there uh, that an elder should have is that he should be above reproach. Now, that's just about the same concept as blameless. It certainly doesn't mean sinless. And we have men who will be approached to be an elder and be told that they're nominated and would they stand for election and take training, and they say, oh, my goodness, I, I'm nowhere near being perfect. I, I'm not good enough. And one thing we say to them is, well, thanks for that reply, because that's exactly what we hoped we'd hear. We don't want you to tell us you're good enough. We certainly don't want you to think you need to be sinless or that you are sinless. But that's not what blamelessness is. To be blameless has to do with your reputation. Is the outward exhibition of your behavior, your actions in everyday things in the world, in line with your inner life? Or are you living a double life? Are you a man, you know, who looks great, you're on the church board, you serve communion, and hey, if somebody followed you home to your computer, they wouldn't want to find out what's going to spill out of the hard drive. That's not a, that, you know, you might be blameless that nobody knows about the hard drive, but that's a double life. A blameless life is one that is a relatively open book so that what people see is indeed what you are. You're congruent, your behavior and your inner self are one. And nobody's going to come and say who knows you better. I, I remember many years ago in another church, I met a fellow and, uh, out in the community and he said, Oh, I, I've heard of your church. A man from my company goes there. And we found out, oh, and I said, sure, Fred. He's an elder. And the man looked at me and said, Fred is an elder at your church? I thought, oh, no. You know, what does this guy know about Fred? Because it seemed obvious to me that the very idea that this individual was a spiritual leader was a surprise to him. I'd have to wonder about the blamelessness of that life. But sinners saved by grace who really sin and really have weaknesses can have blameless reputations if, you see, we're congruent in the way we act and what we are. and We're not somehow presenting a false front. Here's the key to this, I think. You might say, well, again, this being a spiritual star sounds like too much for me. I don't shine that well. Listen to what Paul's saying here. He says that those to whom you shine this way belong to a crooked and depraved generation. Everything about them is bent and out of kilter and full of shadows. And so any amount of light to them is helpful and useful. I was flipping through channels the other day with the old remote there and... uh, as usual, marveling at how many channels you can have and how little there is to see, hoping I might come up with an old movie or a football game or something that I was interested in to spend a little time on and just relax. I couldn't come up with anything. I'm not, that's not unusual. And, you know, I, I was thinking about why is it that I've got all this stuff, all these channels, you know, firm abs in two days or something. That isn't going to do me any good. I know it's a false promise to begin with, but, you know, 
you can look at it superficially and say, well, it's all just fluff. But it isn't just fluff. It isn't just foul language. It isn't just sexually suggestive jokes being the basis of everything called comedy. It isn't just excessive violence or uh, women dressed in risque clothing. It goes deeper. What our society calls entertainment today is rotten all the way through. Because the worldview it represents is godless. And no real value is put on people as people or made in God's image. There's no idea of absolute truth. And in other words, it's not just superficially dark. It's really dark all the way in. Now, Paul is saying, you're going to shine like God's stars with the light of Christ in your life in that environment. If it's pitch black and you have a little light... You're an improvement on everything else near you. A candle's light, you know. You take a candle out on a summer's day at noon, bright sunlight. You have to look at it. Oh, yeah, the candle's lit. It's not illuminating anything. But carry the candle into your basement and close a closet with no light on, and you'll be glad you have it because you'll see something by it. That's what Paul's saying. We have the light of Christ if we belong to him. Now, elaborating on that a bit in a third point, we say this. Christian character then begins with a new birth which makes us utterly distinct, utterly different from people with a worldly character. Light and darkness are opposites, aren't they? I can't explain that to you in physics. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even sure if a a scientist can explain it. How do you say what light is? How do you say what darkness? Darkness is the absence of light, isn't it? Can you explain it any other way? Genesis 1 tells us the first creative thing God did was say, let there be light. Try to imagine that. Primordial chaos, total darkness, no light, no definition of anything. And the first thing God does is say, there will be light. So it's not accidental that when Jesus came into the world, he was called the light of the world because he exposed things. He, he showed things for what they really are in the light of God. Now, there are many commentators who believe that when Paul wrote here in Philippians, he was certainly a scholar of the Old Testament, that he probably had Daniel 12.3 in mind as he wrote here about us being shining stars. In other words, he was quoting. He didn't give the reference, but he was probably quoting from Scripture he knew, Daniel 12.3, which says this, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will be like stars forever and ever. God spoke the idea through Daniel, then he spoke it through Paul, saying the Christian man and woman is different. Why? Because we've been remade by God's grace. We are possessors of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. God's wonderful uniqueness is being reworked in us, and we're not perfect yet by a long shot. That holiness and glory we're going to have one day in heaven isn't there yet, but God is at work, and the essence of God and Christ are changing us degree by degree so that we stand out from unredeemed people. We're different in kind. 
And so Matthew 5.14 has Jesus say, you, my disciples, you are the light of the world. You are what I am. Lesser lights, perhaps, but your lights in the world. Your candles of Christ. In John 12.36, we are called children of light. And so it is that Paul tells us here that we shine in this dark world like stars against the night sky. You know, I think you can have a collective illustration of this when you think about the United States of America as a country, and it's from its founding. There's no debate that this, uh, well, people debate it, but they're wrong if they disagree, that this country was founded by primarily Christian people with primarily and predominant Christian notions and Christian ideas, drawing from biblical principles as they shaped the government of our land and wrote its laws. And, you know, you might say, well, no, this was never a Christian country. No, uh, we never had a church established as a state church or anything like that. But Christian notions, Christian truth shaped America. And I won't debate that with you because I'm right and you're wrong, okay? I'm sorry. It's that clear cut. I would go further and contend with you that that biblical influence of absolute truth and the truth of the Scriptures seeped into everything in our land, the way, we, the way we executed justice, the way our courts worked, the way our laws worked, even the music and culture that we produced in this land. There was indirectly light of Christ and light of God through American culture that made us a lighthouse that much of the world looked to and said, I want to live in the United States. That's a great place to be. Why else are they breaking down our borders to get here? But as that light recedes, and boy is it receding, folks, so goes the greatness and much of the uniqueness of what we were. It wasn't just that we're some kind of a unique political experiment dreamed up a couple hundred years ago. It's that the principles of God and Christ were at least broadly, I'm not saying specifically in every instance, but broadly exhibited in the history and the institutions of this country. So I ask, do you shine as Christ's star in some shadowy place? where you work and maybe you're the only or one of very few Christians, in some institution, some school you're going to, in a family where maybe your faith is in the minority, an extended family. And you might say, well, I don't know if anybody sees me as a star or not, but I wonder what if we went and asked the people around you and the people you move among and you influence, if your lamp was removed if it would be darker there. I hope they would say, yes, it would be, if your candle was taken away. Think how much deeper the darkness could be if Christians did not still, even in our government, even in our Senate and our Congress and and on our judiciary benches, didn't influence and lighten this land. Pray for every point of light you know within our government, and there are more than many give credit to. So our text, I believe, invokes us to submit to God's plans at work in us 
so that we would be the rare person in this society who's not complaining and angry all the time? Why do we have all this road rage? Why does terrorism erupt everywhere? Why is political discourse so impolite and so rancorous today? People are mad. They're mad because they live in the darkness and they're unsatisfied. Christian, you're called to something different. You're called to a submissiveness to see that God is the Lord of all things. You're called to think carefully about his ways, even when they don't necessarily suit what you think should be going on in your life. And you know, you might be the person that says, I'm still not convinced that I'm a very bright light. I certainly don't feel like a shining star. All right, I'll concede to you. You might just be one of those smoldering wicks Do you remember Isaiah 42? When the Lord said, if your life is even like, you know how the candle's going out, you've blown it out or you've snuffed it and the smoke's already coming, but there's two little sparks still there. That's the smoldering wick. And the Lord says, I don't even snuff that out. I respect that. He values the light that you do give of Christ, weak though it might be. You could be the best reflection of Christ some people are ever going to have a chance to see. I leave you with 2 Peter 1.19. It's an admonition from Peter that goes right alongside what Paul is saying here. Peter wrote there that God's inspired word in Scripture is, quote, a light shining in a dark place. And he said, you do well to pay attention to it until the final day dawns and Christ himself, the morning star, arises in your hearts. Your light comes from him. His light, one day, will flood you with a brightness that the world will see and marvel at. Let's pray together. Father, I feel a little bit like this message could be summarized by the simple children's song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let us not, as adults, despise that idea. We are your light. The world is going to see you and hear words of life and see the authenticity of you transforming a life as it happens in us. So, Lord God, humble us under your mighty hand. Be exalted even in our poor obedience. For Jesus' sake, amen.